Welcome to the Exponential Podcast, where we help you live the life of a multiplier. Our mission is to empower you to take your life, leadership, and impact to the next level. In each episode, we'll explore strategies and insights to help you multiply your influence and calling in the world for Jesus. Today's episode is from Exponential 2023's Global Conference in Orlando, where we brought together some of the world's top leaders and innovators to share their insights and expertise. To experience more conversations like this, be sure to check out our upcoming events at Exponential.org. My name is Bobby Harrington, and I'm backing up. Yes, hi everybody, I'm the backed up Bobby Harrington for the recording, and I'm really glad to have all of you here. And uh, uh, I'd like to know, um, how many of you are about to go out and start a church in the next 12 months? Raise your hand. Wow, great. Uh, how about the rest? Are you just trying to understand? Tell, tell me what you're thinking. One year old, she's trying to say, okay, how can we look at this and make sure we got disciple making at the core? Okay. Uh, how about the rest? Anybody who's not doing the next 12 months? How about you back there? You're going to birth the church. So you want to understand about that. Well, good. So let me tell you about Renew.org and why we care about this conversation. So I'm a lead pastor of a church that I planted, uh, by God's grace 25 years ago, uh, just outside Nashville, Tennessee and Franklin, Tennessee by the Harpeth River. So the church is called Harpeth Christian Church. And uh, that led me to uh, learn a lot. I trained church planters for about a decade with an organization called Stadia. Anybody here heard of Stadia? Raise your hand. Okay, so uh, back in the day we trained church planters, uh, trained about 200 church planting teams. Uh, of course, in addition to planting a church myself. But then I became very thoroughly convinced that disciple-making had to be the core. Uh, and so uh, Jim Putman, whom some of you know, he, he and I worked together training church planters. And I finally decided that uh, disciple-making was so important that I had to make that a focus. That led to... Uh, helping start the Relational Discipleship Network, and then I lead an organization called Discipleship.org. Well, as I work with Discipleship.org, so we bring together the leading practitioners of disciple-making from around the nation and, and around the world in many cases. I realize that if you do not have a theology to undergird your disciple-making, it will not be sustained. And so uh, a group of us launched Renew, whose mission is to renew the teachings of Jesus to fuel disciple-making. And we understand the teaching of Jesus to be how he inspired Moses in the Old Testament, how he inspired the prophets, of course, how he inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Apostle Paul. In other words, the teaching of Jesus is the teaching of Scripture and how that's so crucial in disciple-making. So uh, we just advocate uh, good theology and disciple-making. At the end of our time together, I'm going to share some resources about that. But what I'd like to talk to you uh, for a few minutes now about is how we used to plant churches and how I believe churches should be planted now and what I would advocate for today in terms of church planting. Now, um, so I'd like to start with a word of prayer. Uh, what I want to do is I want to take about 20 minutes. I want to explain the past and the present. And then Paul Hugobard, who's my partner at Renew.org, he's one of our associate directors, he's going to come up and, sh- and, and take us out. Okay. So my job is to set up the tension of the previous system, the dominant system, even here at Exponential, is still dominant, uh, and then the future-looking systems that are particularly being used around the world. Let's pray. God, we commit this time to you. I ask, God, that you would use, uh, through those who are here present or through those who watch the recording, I just pray and ask that you'd change our lives uh, through what we're going to look at. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so uh, one of the things that COVID showed up is that uh, non-discipleship or non-disciple making is uh, the elephant in the church. A lot of people talking about how we got to get back to disciple making here at Exponential. Uh, next year, that's going to be the focus. Dave Ferguson, when he started, talked about... You know, the, the goal is a multiplication leader who's focused on disciple making. And I just want to say there's a whole lot more talking about disciple making than actually doing disciple making. And it's really easy to talk about it and believe in it. It's another thing to actually have effective uh, disciple making systems. So why would you care about Jesus style disciple making? Why I would, if I were to sum everything up, I would not start with Matthew 28. Uh, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you for all, uh, throughout all time. Because people hear that as this mandate to make converts only, or to go overseas and do it, where it's really Jesus intended it to be a part of our lives. So after being in relationship with people, probably for about nine months, Jesus said to a group of them, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. So Jesus is actually giving us a a good framework for a definition. Uh, Follow me, and uh, it's going to change your life, and when you're mature, you're going to fish for people. Okay, so if you've been watching The Chosen, I hope you have. It will be encouraging you with what that might have looked like. Now, Jesus said something that's got to guide and motivate and undergird and propel all disciple making, and that is love. Agape love. He said, my command is that you love each other as I have loved you. So Christ-like love, which is different than love is love... Christ-like love is modeled on how Jesus loved, and it's the motivation of why you would want somebody to be a disciple. Two primary reasons. Because I want people to know the salvation in Jesus if they're lost, and then I want people to grow up and become more and more like Jesus if they're saved. So disciple-making is reaching and discipling lost people, and it's discipling saved people so that they become more and more like Jesus and honor God. And so before Jesus is about to leave, uh, John records it this way, the, the commission. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So Jesus is saying, as, as God sent me to move into the neighborhood and love and lead you and guide you, uh, bring salvation and the way of life. Jesus said to his disciples, Now I want you to go. God's sending me to send you to go and do the same thing. Okay? So what is his method? I'll sum it up in three words. Intentional, relational, transformation. So it's an intentional entering into relationships to help people uh, come to trust and follow Jesus and then live their lives as those who trust and follow Jesus. Now I want you to look at this chart because I want to make an argument uh, that really I think is at the heart of Jesus-style disciple-making and why when you plant a church you've got to be about disciple-making. And here's what it is. The old ways of just preaching at people are not sufficient for the time in which we live. Here's what I mean by that. When I started uh, the church where uh, I continue to serve as lead pastor, but when we started it, we really wanted to have a great Sunday show. We didn't call it a show. We wanted to have a great Sunday service. And it was so funny looking back on it. You know, we wanted to use video clips because back then... You know, 25 and a half years ago, video clips were cool in church. And uh, I live in Nashville, so we wanted to have the best band you can imagine and the best singers. And I had, uh, anybody here know the name Phil Keggy? Uh, so Phil Keggy came to one of our first services and played for us. And uh, anybody here of Elvis Presley? I was so happy the day Elvis Presley's drummer became our drummer and uh, became the deacon of our music. And and uh, uh, anybody here heard of Echo Smith, the band Echo Smith? Yeah, at the back, yeah, uh, Echo Smith's father, Jeffrey David, was one of our first praise and worship leaders. Well, back then, you could assume a lot of things in the culture. You could assume basic sexual stuff, not that everybody lived it, 
but you could assume people understood it. You could say, yeah, the Bible's the inspired Word of God, and most people would say, I'm not sure I believe that, but I, that's what Christians believe. You can't do any of that stuff anymore. So you've got to have a relationship, and it's got to be a relationship. Let me give you another example. 25 years ago when we started our church, if you were to preach through Romans chapter 1, people might not agree with you when you talked about what Paul said, but they wouldn't stand up and walk out. Today, if you try to teach Romans chapter 1, and you're just going through what it says, people will stand up and they'll walk out on you. So we've got to go back and say, how did Jesus do it? Well, Jesus did it with a lot of TLC, a lot of tender, loving care, a lot of relationship. Because here's the deal. Jesus showed us this. Ultimately, disciples are handcrafted a few at a time. They are not mass-produced. Now, we know that's true because uh, of everything we've learned about education. But look at this chart, which uh, Grant Skelton gave to me. Uh, we know that a lecture, only people retain 5%. You're saying, are you saying, Bobby Harrington, people only retain 5% of sermons? Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, what about reading? Well, it goes up to 10%. Get a little more. What about audio video? If you got like sound and sights, well, it goes up to 20%. What about demonstrating? Hey, let me show you how to do it. I can remember when my dad was teaching me how to take care of the first dump truck. My dad was a truck driver and showing me how to check the oil. Yeah, I could watch him do it, but it wasn't until we talked about it and I did it that I actually understood how to check the oil. And even then, it took me a while, right? So then you practice by doing it, goes up to 75%. And lastly, if you teach others and immediately use it, it goes way up. That chart is actually a pretty good description of Jesus' method of disciple-making. Because disciples are handcrafted a few at a time. They are not mass-produced. Make sense, everybody? Can I get some head shaking? This is how you agree. This is how you disagree. And if you're not sure, just do that. Okay? So let's keep walking through it. So... Uh, now, I'm going to come to this passage as something I want to commend to everybody here who cares about disciple-making. But before I do that, I want to describe for you how we planted churches and when I was with Stadia, how we trained people to plant churches. And here's the deal. We're going to start a church. So when you start a church, you want to make sure, first of all, that you have the right person. We would say the right person, the right place, and the right process. So if um, if you're going to plant in Williamson County, uh, which is where I'm from, Williamson County, Tennessee, it would be best if you match that place. Now, that was a little bit of a disconnect for me because I'm a Canadian, and uh, I tend to, by personality and by background I'm a little more blunt whereas southerners are they're they're gentlemen and women and they hint at things and uh, so in some ways I had to learn but I had my wife teaching me don't be so blunt and come on Bobby you know be nice and all that kind of stuff uh, but you ideally we wanted the person to match the place of the people you're trying to reach and the third P was a process we wanted to give a good process well what was the good process the good process is you got to get your funding once you got the right person the right place and the right process you get your funding and then you're gonna uh, so that you can support yourselves for a couple of years to get the church up and running and then the church will financially support you so you want to get your funding and we had seven positions we would try to staff are you ready for them we wanted to have the good the the main preacher teacher guy that was me then you wanted somebody to do praise and worship because praise and worship is so important right uh, and preferably somebody who could uh, not only present well but uh, you know do the charts and get the teams and all that and then you needed somebody to take care of the children because children's ministry is so important especially when you're planting in Williamson County where everybody had kids and the target audience was Williamson, Wayne and Wendy who had a 10 year old and a 12 year old so you wanted to have make sure you have a good children's ministry for Williamson, Wayne and Wendy and then because most preachers don't keep track of money and funds and details and filings with governments and all that. You needed a good accounting person. Uh, then you needed somebody to be in charge of the setup teams because the setup teams were a really big deal when you're meeting in a school like we did. And then also you wanted somebody who could uh, help coordinate all the 
the admin stuff, like, you know, keeping track of small groups and all that. Is there, is there, can I get some amens? Okay, now what are we doing everything when we plant this church? Everything in this church that we're planting is targeted first and foremost around a Sunday morning gathering. Now, most churches to this day will spend 80% of all their time, energy, and effort focused on Sunday mornings. I want to advocate a different model to you. Because what we tried to do back then is we would try with that model to retrofit retrofit disciple-making back into the Sunday morning gathering. Can anybody see the pro- the problem with that just on the surface of it? You're trying to retrofit disciple-making into an attractional model. So what's disciple-making always going to be? Well, it's going to be attractional. I'm sorry, what did you say? Well, you're going to try to do it through mass production, which I've already showed you how that doesn't work. It's also not how Jesus did it, right? So you're going to try to add something in your, I was going to be playing catch-up, because people really think the main point of the thing is the Sunday morning show. And that's actually not what we believe. So, back to this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2. And I would argue the whole uh, latter part of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives something really important. So, the Apostle Paul is assuming a model that you see in the life of Jesus and that he's commending to Timothy. He says, The things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust reliable people who will also be able to qualify to teach others. So here's what you've, you've got four generations. There's Paul who's discipling Timothy. Agreed? Okay, now Timothy is there in Ephesus. Paul has discipled Timothy. And what does Paul tell Timothy to do? To disciple reliable people so those reliable people will do what? They'll invest in others. So it's four generations of disciple making. Bingo. Here's what I did. I, I, when I, when I first planted my church, we tried to get everybody together. We were working on having this, you know, great Sunday morning programming. And here's what I regret. And, uh, what we're trying to do now, and I'm, I'm grateful to tell you that at my church, uh, uh, 80, 80% of all the people are actively involved in discipling relationships. What the norm for us now is Sunday mornings are good, but what's primary is discipling relationships. So here's what I would do differently today if I were starting from scratch. This is a book that Alex Absalom and I wrote several years ago called Discipleship That Fits. And it talks about the different discipling relationships. There's public discipling, which can be a limited effectiveness. I'm not saying you don't disciple people in a public gathering, but it's not the most effective as we've seen. In fact, discipling becomes more effective the more up close and personal it is. So in a social setting, like Jesus had with the 72 or Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus and the 12, that gets more effective. But even when you're with 12 people, that's a lot of people. Like it's not eyeball to eyeball, heart to heart all the time. It's, it's, there are some occasions like that, but it's more you have a personal relationship. You kind of know them. A good friend of mine, uh, was in Israel last year and they walked everywhere Jesus did and I asked him to write down for a journal article or a blog on renew.org his experience and he said the thing that really surprised me is how hard it is even when you're walking with people where Jesus walked to keep up on 12 people. You tend to gravitate to two or three others that you're walking with. Well, you see in the Gospels that Jesus spent an inordinate amount of time with three people, Peter, James, and John. That was the highest impact discipling. At Renew.org, we have a model we encourage with the teachings of Jesus. We call this the transparent space, how to disciple people there. And then, of course, the most important is you on your knees with Scripture before God the divine space. So here's what we recommend today, and I'm going to turn it over to Paul, is that before you start fixating on your Sunday large gathering, multiply groups. Now, there's two basic types of groups when you're planning a church you're going to do. One is the social size, which is like a house church or a missional community, or it may be a small group model. 
you typically want to have, uh, if it's small groups, you want seven small groups going before you start meeting on Sunday. If it's a missional model, a house church model, you may just want to multiply house churches as long as these are about disciple making. Now, whichever one you do, the real leadership development, the high-impact discipling is going to be in the transparent space. So the transparent groups will either support your personal small groups, life groups, or whatever you call them, or the transparent discipling, men with men, women with women, will support the house church or the missional community size. You multiply those groups, you make disciple-making the core DNA of everything that you're about, and then, uh, if it's beneficial, then you add Sunday gatherings on top of that, and you've established a church plant where disciple-making is the core thing you do. So I hope that's helpful. I'll come up at the end and tell you about some resources you may want to look at on this. And now I will turn it over to my colleague who has been uh, uh, heavily invested at his church in uh, disciple-making environments, but also learning everything that he can about foreign disciple-making movements. Paul? Okay, so we're, we're kind of making assumption that, that you're here because you're interested in planting a church that is maybe different from the churches that you have been a part of, that you've seen, that you've seen launched. And so that's what this conversation is all about. That's what Bobby is talking about. What I want to try to do, um, this is kind of like point one or maybe the, the first part of uh, what could be kind of a two-part conversation for me anyway. I'll be uh, right here 8.30 tomorrow morning talking more in depth about principles that precede practice and so that come before practice. But right now, I want to be real clear with you following Bobby's conversation here. Bobby was obviously clear as well. So I want to be clear about what we're talking about. When we're talking about a movement from one thing to another thing, I want you to see very clearly what this is. And so so um, I'll advance this uh, real quick here. Um, all right. So uh, my name is Paul. That, that doesn't matter as much as just that you know um, that uh, working with Renew, especially in this area of being a special project team lead, I've been engaging both with overseas global disciple-making movements and those here in the North American church who are trying to make disciple-making the main thing. Okay, And as a, as a church planter, you have the incredible benefit of from square one, putting the type of DNA into the church that you're planting that you want to see multiplied on and on and on. Those who are working with legacy churches are working to kind of reverse engineer this thing and bring it in, and it is a battle and it is a fight. But if you start from square one, you've got the distinct advantage of being able to put the right kind of DNA in. And so here's the deal. The trouble with a lot of planting that still happens today, especially that, you know, and trying to do the best we can to renew movements is definitely, I think, going to take a, a real lead in this, in, in helping planters plant these kind of churches. Because sometimes even the planting organizations want to plant churches that look like existing churches, right? As opposed to maybe these disciple-making communities. And so we're going to have a conversation about what we're talking from when we're saying, okay, we're, this is what we've seen, this is what we need to see if we're going to plant these types of churches. Okay? So the first is this. We've had this kind of attitude in the existing church that the more volunteers we mobilize, the more people can participate in our church programs. Amen? So that's the way the programmatic church thinks. And by the way, this thinking comes from a a group that I've been a part of made up of, I'd say, probably 35 church denominations, parachurch organizations, thinking about how can we put in place um, an operating system, if you will, um, a DNA, if that language fits better. How can we create that DNA from the beginning so that we see the results that we're hoping to see? Okay, so that has been kind of the idea that's been in place, right? The more volunteers we mobilize. Anybody been a part of a church like that? If we can volunteer, if we can mobilize lots of volunteers, we can get a lot of people into our church programs. And there's even this idea that if we make a leader out of somebody new, they're likely to bring six people with them. You heard that before? All right, so we get this volunteer to lead. They'll bring six people with them. The church will continue to grow. But if we want to be disciple-making churches, here's what we've got to be about. The more disciple-makers we equip, the more people we activate to live out their calling where they live, learn, work, and play. Those are the kind of people we need to be, right? So we could embed that DNA from square one. How about another one? 
right, this has been where we've been. By giving spiritual learning to people connected to us, we can further assimilate them into our church. Right? So is teaching not important? Of course teaching matters. Teaching is incredibly important. By teaching more, we get you deeper into our church fellowship. That's been the goal, especially within the uh, the prevailing church model, the programmatic church, you might call that. Some call that the attractional churches. Come here, come see here. Everything happens here. And what happens, Bobby says on Sunday morning, is it is the main thing. It's, what most, it's what's most important. But if we could make disciple-making the main thing, what could this look like? Well, it might look like this. By relationally discipling people in all spaces of life, they will experience the transformation of the gospel and apprentice others to do the same. Or disciple others to do the same, if you like that language better. Okay, so that's that's a pretty big shift. And we're not saying that this other thing doesn't matter at all anymore. We're saying the second becomes the main thing. Right? So the second becomes the main thing. So we, re- we relationally disciple people in all spaces of life. Okay, here's another one. Bring your friends to our program, and someone with a high level of expertise will tell them about Jesus. Right? We sometimes call this approach the sage on the stage. And I'm just as guilty as the next person because I stand up typically, typically every Sunday morning in front of a crowd of hundreds of people and share with them a message and hope that my message motivates and moves them, inspires them to go do something. But as Bobby said, 5% of that is retained. And how much of that 5% is actually put into action? I'm going to guess a fairly low percentage. I, I can be honest with you about my churches. We are trying to make the transition from being a, a very a programmatic church, an attractional model church, very much a come and see church to a go and be church. We preached on this for years and saw very little traction. Once we started working with people and rubbing shoulders with people, there was a moment where I was standing on stage and I, I, had, I, I mean, it just hit me. So I was a high school basketball coach for a time. I loved coaching high school basketball. Not because I got my guys together, sat them down in a row, stood up on the stage in the gym and said, guys, this is what good basketball looks like. I loved coaching basketball because I loved getting on the court with them. I, I played and ran as much as half of those guys did during practice because I could show them how to become a better basketball player by being on the court with them. I couldn't tell them what boxing out looked like, but I could show them what boxing out looked like. I could show them what it looked like to become a better foul shooter, what it, what it looked to, like to become a better passer. I mean, all these things I could show them by engaging with them in one-on-one relationships, spending time with particular players. What does it look like to become a better big man? How do you shield the ball better when somebody's trying to take the ball from you and you're at the top? Right. So all these things happened not by me sitting them down in the front row and telling them, guys, this is what this looks like, and here's my fancy diagram for what this looks like, which is kind of what we're doing right now. But we're hoping that this inspires you as church leaders to be that 5% that really takes it and goes and does it, right? So this is what happens. So we go from this, we bring your friends to our program, and somebody with a high-level expertise will tell them about Jesus to every disciple is sent out to share the good news of Jesus with people that God already has them in relationship with. Think about the way that transforms, right? Okay, next. All right. In, in our current model, the work of leadership is to manage and grow the programs and the number of volunteers and finances needed to sustain it. This is where this one sometimes gets sticky, right? I mean, that, that is our current model. The work of leadership, I mean, this even becomes difficult for those of us whose jobs and livelihoods are tied to the current system. The current system disincentivizes us to do something different sometimes. So my job is to manage and grow these programs. And I told my leadership at one point in time, this is several years ago, I said, hey, guys, I just want to let you know I'm tired of managing church. That's, I'm not doing it anymore. This is what I want to see happen. Are we on board? Is this the direction we're going? Because I'm not a church manager. I want to be a disciple maker. Okay, so that's the way it looks, right? And so we want to make sure that we manage and grow the programs, the number of volunteers, the finances needed to sustain it. If we were to say, no, we're going to shift to something different and new and better, the task of leadership would be to equip and activate disciple-makers to authentically live out their unique calling and to do so with other disciple-makers. Right? Do you see the difference between those? It's a big difference between programmatic church and disciple-making church. Here's another one. 
Currently, the structure of the church is designed to allow the staff to properly oversee programs and people in a way so that they can grow and scale, right? How can we, Bobby talked about this, how can we make this bigger? Who, who do we need to bring on staff next to make sure that we're managing this whole thing well? We need a fill in the blank to make sure that we're managing this well. But the shift would look like this. The structure of the church is designed to foster a catalytic, envi- catalytic environment. In other words, what happens here is what sets the tone for what's going to happen out there. Every time. That's what we're focused on. So that multiplication of disciples, leaders, and groups becomes normative. It's what we see. It's part of the culture, ingrained within the culture. All right. How about this one? Currently, community is a retention strategy. Let's be honest about this one. This is what community, this is the purpose that community serves within the programmatic church. It's a retention strategy so that we can close the back door. I mean, have you ever sat in a meeting where you're having the front door, back door conversation? I mean, I can remember sitting in meetings saying, we're losing people out the back door. So we need to build community so that we stop losing people out the back door because we're not seeing those same people win on Sunday mornings, or they didn't come to this event that we had, or whatever it happens to be. So we need to do better building community. So we want to make church programming sticky in that sense. Okay, But in the disciple-making church, community is a transformation strategy. Not about how many people we can keep in the seats on Sunday mornings. It's a transformation strategy through spiritual family that sustains the work of God. Right? the work that God is doing in and through disciple-makers. Okay? All right. So currently, what does church look like? Well, currently, in church, we sustain growth by gaining givers and growing what they give. Right? So we challenge people to give more. I mean, this is the conversation. And I'm not saying these conversations aren't important. They are important. But I can remember, for us, when every November rolled around, and guess what series we were going to preach? We need you to give because it reflects how thankful you are. And there's truth in that. But what we were really saying is we need you to give because we want to do things bigger and better than what we're doing right now. We're going to make sure that you, you know, you understand that it does reflect how thankful you are, but, but there is more to that, right? So generosity then is the source of an economic engine. So more money equals more growth. So give so we can grow. Give so we can expand. Give so we can, you can fill in the blank there. All right? But in a disciple-making church, this is what it could look like. Transformed disciple-makers live out their unique calling, and, and there's not necessarily need for a high overhead or loads of staff and loads of building, lo- loads of facilities to do church. Now, that may be down the road a little bit, or for some of you thinking about planting a church, that may be the next thing. But it may not look quite like give so we can grow. It may look like, look, we've got, we've got what we need and God is making what needs to happen happen through the people that we have and we have a different strategy about how we spend finance. We may think differently about buildings. We may rent spaces instead of own spaces and all this you can start to think about and think through. Okay, so if that's what we're talking about, what has been but what could be, the question now is what kind of outcomes and results might you expect to see if we made some of those shifts, right? Some of those changes. If we made those movements reality, what would you expect to see? So let's talk through those just real quickly. All right, first, you would expect to see this. Everyday disciple-makers are leading the vast majority of people to Christ relationally rather than pastors or programming in church spaces. And we, we say this a lot in Renew. We've heard this a lot from DMM guys. It's everyday, ordinary disciples making other disciples because of the extraordinary, extraordinary God that is at work in and through them. As opposed to, and, and I, I, I did the seminary thing. I mean, I'm not putting down the seminary thing. Probably a lot of you did the seminary thing. But as opposed to having the expert on the stage being the one who's doing all of that, right? So we move from invest and invite to we go and we have the conversations. Okay, next next outcome result. Make sure I'm moving quickly enough. Um, we may witness a move away from building better services and better buildings, bigger buildings, to ongoing training and equipping for disciple-making in everyday relational spaces. Right? The church could look very, very different in that regard. Now, the church may look somewhat similar as well, 
but the value changes. Therefore, the outcome and the result changes as well. Next one. Uh, the poor and marginalized will likely be better served within the community of the church and beyond as a movement of people seek the flourishing of their neighborhood and city in lasting and tangible ways. I mean, this, this matters. You know, the reality is that many of our churches, and you know, the question has been asked, you've heard this before too, right? If your church were to disappear tomorrow, would your community even know the difference? Uh, Rick Russell wrote a, a great book talking about, you know, how we can be the best church not in the community but for the community. And these are the kind of churches we ought to be, not can we be the best church in the community. That really is the programmatic attractional churches. We're almost in competition with the next church down the road, and we want to do at least something better than what they're doing instead of being really focused on being disciples who make disciples. So now we start to ask the question of how can we be the best church for our community instead of how can we be the best church in our community. That's a huge shift in thinking for many of us. All right, next outcome result. As the people of God grow in spiritual maturity and are more and more yielded to the Holy Spirit, it leads to growth in the depth and frequency of prayer. This is huge. We'll talk about this more tomorrow at 8.30. We see this both at play within individual lives and in groups. Bobby and I have seen this transformation in our churches. I can tell you about our staff meetings. We used to pray real quick because it was a thing to do, right? We'd pray real quickly. Okay, we're done with the prayer. Let's get to talking about strategy. Let's jump into it now. Many of our staff meetings now, we spend the first 50% in prayer, and our strategy is way better than it ever was. So we're getting on our knees, we're praying, we're worshiping together as a staff team, and we don't think we're wasting time. We think we're doing the best thing we can with our time instead of diving right into whatever important conversation we think we have. We want to be the people of God, believing that the presence of God is what enables the work of God. Okay? All right. Uh, And then also this one, uh, as well as public and private repentance. You know, we're coming before God because God is transforming us. He's changing us in tangible ways. Um, Next one is transformed disciple makers are mobilized into the cracks and crevices, crevices of society where they live, work, learn, and play. There is a faithful and attractive Christian witness in the homes and vocational spaces where these disciples are employed. So can we be honest, if we want to be attractive, I want the lives of those connected with our church family to be way more attractive than what happens on the stage on a Sunday morning. Because that's what's going to change lives. A great band, a preacher dressed just right, jeans that are just tight enough, whatever, however you want to, I mean, that just, it doesn't do it. We're not changing lives that way, and I don't mean to make fun of those things, I mean, Some of those things can serve good purposes, but what I want more than anything is an attractive Christian witness, not an attractive Sunday morning service. Not saying we're going to do away with that entirely. In fact, we've chosen an approach for our sense, for our settings that runs kind of on both rails. We're both come and see and go and be. But the go and be is what matters most. Okay, next. Uh, Because reproduction is happening. At the smallest level, disciple-making, so that's the smallest level, that is kind of the base level, right? Reproduction is happening at the smallest level. Reproduction works its way into every space and culture, right? Leaders, groups, churches, networks of churches, all of these things are seeing multiplication or replication or reproduction, whatever word you like, best in there. So we're seeing it happen first with disciples, Individual disciples make other disciples. Groups of disciples multiply into other groups of disciples. Churches multiply into other churches. Networks multiply. This is what we see happening often in the global south as well. And then one more here, and then, Bobby, I'll I'll bring you up for questions, feedback. I know you've got some more you want to share too. This last one, and, and this is so often missing in the type of church service where we... You know, we come together and we think we have community because we've stared at the back of 500 heads for the last hour of our life and then we go off to the restaurant. That's not community, right? I mean, there's, it's very hard to one another, each other, when you don't even see the eyes of another person. Very difficult. So we need these circles instead of all these rows and we need to be in each other's lives and sometimes in each other's faces. I mean, that's the way it works. We're the people of God connected and committed to one anothering. Healthy family systems, life on life, generational discipleship in a culture that is defined by fellowship like Koinonia, right? 
that maybe that's one good thing we got out of seminary. Koinonia, understanding what that real kind of fellowship means in a community that's working towards everything in common. Because in the first chapters of Acts, that's what made even non-believers take notice. Right? It was a transformed community, not a great Sunday gathering that changed things and changed the world bit by bit. So, Bobby, I'm going to turn it back over to you, um, and then we can have time for questions and feedback as well. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate what Paul's saying. I'm, I want to get to some resources that I can uh, help you with in terms of de- developing these disciple-making models and all of that. But let's just stop, Paul, uh, now and see if anybody has any questions or pushback. By the way, there's a clipboard going around. If everybody could fill that clipboard in. Uh, I can email you some of the resources I'm, we're going to talk about in just a second. But let me just see if you have... Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so the question is, yeah, because we've got a recording going. So, um, the question is this: um, In global disciple making movements, do we see a very organized structure and system that leads to? And and I'll say this: um, It's yes and no. I mean, it depends on on where you go. There, there uh, we sometimes assume that um, that there's not deep structure and strategy to what is happening. The question is how that strategy emerges. You know, again, for, for most of these, the why was way before the what, or the principles came way before the practice. They were, uh, they were feeling the same tension that you and I did, but they were developing a model and a strategy out of uh, a deep lament for the church that was, knowing there had to be something better. So on their knees, fasting and praying before God, and out of this emerges something new. Uh, it would amaze you in Sierra Leone, for example, they keep track of numbers that we don't even ever think about measuring. And so it's not that there isn't that happening. It's just that um, they know they know generations of disciples. They know that that disciple made that disciple, made that disciple, that disciple, and there's pictures to support this, you know, going 14 generations deep. They know how many churches this guy's planted in the last year. They know they've got church multiplication conferences where you cannot attend if you did not plant five churches that year. I mean, things like that. So it's not that there are not... Um, system structure, strategy, measures in place. There are, but they've been developed out of this deep burden and an understanding of the why, right? Not just because we want to keep track of numbers and see if we're growing and getting bigger. You know, at least that, that's my take on it. And then, yes, are things much more organic in some ways? But I love the way Bobby puts this. He says, you know, are we intentionally organic or organically intentional? And the answer is both in that. So, yes. Very much, very true, there are everyday ordinary disciples are doing the work of making more disciples and planting churches. Um, amazing stories we could relate and share uh, about what's happening there. We'll talk a little bit more about those principles tomorrow, by the way, as well. Bobby, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? One of the things you'll find in uh, where disciple-making is effective, I'm going to give you three words. It has a simple, effective, and reproducible model. So whether it's doing it through small groups where you have an apprentice and the uh, coaches understand where people are at in their small group and their spiritual development or uh, with discovery Bible study is another method. It's a simple, but it's effective. And then once you've been through it, anybody can do it. So the key thing is whatever you do, make sure it's simple, effective, and reproducible. Other questions? Yes, at the back. Uh, in a lot of cases, they are bivocational. Now, in the extreme, this is ex- is fully decentralized, right? And in a fully decentralized model, uh, you know, it's going to be more like a house church model, that kind of thing. Uh, I think in North America, uh, you're going to be most effective if you still have a Sunday gathering. So what I advocate for is just make the Sunday gathering a part of the discipling system, but don't make it the focus so that you have small groups and what we call transparency groups. But then take advantage on Sunday morning, but just, you know, uh, don't make it the main thing. Yes, over here. Yeah. 
Um, let me just ask a quick question, too, in return to, to the question, just to get us to think a little bit more deeply. Um, what does launch look like right now for a typical church plant? It's getting together enough people that you can do what? Meet on a Sunday morning, right? But what would launch look like in this way of thinking? I mean, I don't have the specific answer for that. And actually, you know, in this group, we've kind of struggled through that, trying to figure out, too, what is the specific answer for that? Is launch all the way to the moment that one person, you know, because you think about a plane taking off or a shuttle being launched, one person has the passion to go be a disciple who makes disciples and it launches a new thing. Or is it a group of disciple makers coming together? You know, as Bobby said, instead of maybe going for launching a Sunday morning service, Let's build some disciple-making groups. And when we have enough disciple-making groups happening that we're starting to establish DNA, let's then move to a gathering on a Sunday morning. So all you can see in that, everything changes. So you ask about the question about finances or pastors being bivocational. Maybe, yes, no, we're not sure fully, I think. But the reality is, or the question has got to be, are we willing to reconsider the financial model that we have been oftentimes addicted to, which makes it, again... There is a lack of incentive for most pastors to make the transition to being a disciple-making church where this kind of thing would actually happen. Our financial system disincentivizes what we'd actually like to see happen sometimes. So we've got to reconsider that. The other, <clears throat> the, other, the other thing is that more and more it's becoming expensive to build buildings and to, you know, where you, you can gather people on Sunday mornings, as uh, someone was sharing with me. Yeah, other yeah, go ahead. Oh. We have a couple of guys here with uh, Real Life Texas, and I know the model there, Tommy and I talked about it, is try to get seven small groups. Uh, you can get more than that even before you start on Sunday morning because you've got the, the bandwidth. A couple more questions, and I want to tell you about some resources. Yes, sir. Yeah, disciple-making movements. Do you, do you understand the question? I don't understand the question. I think, so. I think um, you know, as far as the terms we use, because I think that's what you're touching on to some degree as well, when we say disciple, we ought to be very clear that we're all saying the same thing, right? Or all thinking the same thing, or discipleship. Discipleship is a pretty ambiguous word at this point in time, if we're honest with it. And some people refuse to use it because of its ambiguous nature. We're sticking with it for the most part. We're just trying to define it clearly. So, you know, we use the same definition you guys would use. You know, the disciple from Matthew 4.19 is someone who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus. So discipleship is helping someone do that, to, to follow Jesus, to be committed to the mission of Jesus, be changed by Jesus, all of that in a kind of a, in a growing, um, in a growing movement and way. And so, Yes, when we're dealing with people in different locations, there are going to be different ways of thinking about things. We may be saying the same thing. Sometimes people don't use the term disciple or discipleship or disciple-making. We'd like to stick with that because Jesus talked about being disciples who make disciples. Uh, we just want to make sure when we talk about what it is to be a disciple that we're very clear. You know, it's more than just following Jesus. Maybe that's the entry ramp to disciple, to being a disciple, but a disciple continues to grow from there. Um, and then, yes, a disciple ultimately is committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what much, being a mature disciple looks like. So we have to go then from there so that it changes the way we think about sending and planting everyday ordinary disciples or going and doing the work of God to be disciples who make disciples everywhere they go. Yeah, last question, right at the back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think to answer you, the question is, uh, in an incredibly busy uh, culture... Where people are traveling to work for so much time and there's so little time, how do you make disciples? I just want to say a couple of things about that. If you can get somebody in a discipling group at least once a week, and maybe it's late at night, maybe it's early in the morning, I, th- I think that there's a lot of people throughout history that was the best they were able to do. Um, I don't know what it's like to live in Nigeria. I don't know what that what you're talking about. So I think it would be foolish for me to try to say, well, this is how it is. 
But I will tell you this, my friend Shadonke Johnson, uh, New Harvest Ministries, they have disciple-making movements in Nigeria, and they figured out how to do it there. So, yeah. Okay, um, I want to um, be conscious of our time. Uh, I know you guys have other classes to go to and that. So uh, hopefully, did everybody get a chance to put your uh, contact on the clipboard? I'm not sure what the clipboard's right up here. I'm going to send you a couple of resources. Uh, I, I want to mention uh, this one. Um, it's uh, how to start a discipling group. So I pointed out to you <clears throat> that there's two uh, basic uh, spaces, the transparent space and then the personal space. So there's some really good resources. Uh, Jim Putman has a book for small groups called Real Life Discipleship Training Manual that's really good in this space. And then I'm going to send you to how to start a transparency group using the teachings of Jesus. I'll send everybody who's on the clipboard, I'll send you both of those links. Uh, one other thing. Chris, can I get you to pass out the whatisrenew.org? Uh, uh, I've got two things here. I, I want to let people. We have an agreement with Exponential. We don't want to. I wouldn't want to come to a cons, uh, conference where I felt like it was a commercial. So I'm sure you don't either. So I'm going to lead us in a closing prayer, and then I want to tell you about some more resources with uh, Renew Network uh, afterwards. Let's pray. God, thank you for these men and women. I pray uh, to see a new generation of uh, disciple-making movements that become churches, that we would plant disciple-making groups, disciple-making people. They would be so effective under your hand, God, that then they would gather people to meet on Sunday mornings and that they would have both the uh, throughout the week and on weekends as well where disciples are made in the different levels. Uh, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, real quick, too, if you are about to plant, if that's something that you're interested in, tonight at Top Golf, and we can give you a quick card to sign up, but it is limited. Um, we, we have 50 spots, I believe, that we've, we're going to have for that. But tonight we're going to be meeting at Top Golf together. You can come hang out with us, play around on us, eat some food on us. Uh, but then also we'd love to have conversations with you about planting. Uh, in the upcoming near future. And so if you're interested in that, come have a conversation with us. We'd love to spend some more time with you and have that have that conversation further. Hey, I guess it's kind of getting chaotic out there. I've, if you're interested in the top golf, golf thing, I've got some uh, uh, QR codes here. I'm going to respect your time and let you all go. I hope you'll take a look at the principles of the network and follow up with Renew. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this Exponential podcast episode. Visit Exponential.org for more resources and join our community of like-minded leaders, pastors, and planters who believe in healthy multiplication.